You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. Nathan, Ben, Jake. Those are some of the names you might hear bandied about today. Indeed. Well, guys, what's going on? What's making you feel insane or sane in your walks as Christians? That's a great question. Thanks. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Uh, we're... It's just one of those transitional times for me where we're headed back into school and we just finished. Actually, I have one more baseball tournament of the summer left. There you go. One in three days. Four days from now, we'll be done with summer baseball. <sighs> so just trying to catch my breath right now. Ben, you going into a transitional period? Uh, Are you becoming a woman? Neither. No, no, not that happened no. last year. Yeah, didn't keep up last year. <laughs> no, keep up. Depends all man, folks. Yeah, I mean, my babies are changing a little bit day by day, so they keep our lives exciting. But I don't know, they're not taking the SAT yet, folks. They're just babies, so you give them like one or two years. <laughs> give them one Sweet. or two years. Yeah, they did fail the last couple of tests. I did start a book that only just started it on a recommendation from a friend. So, uh, I don't know, this might be a little bit interesting because I was talking to a friend who pastors a Chinese church Mm. and we were talking about, I don't, I won't go into the details, but we were talking about his own relationship with his mom and how that impacts his family and all kinds of things. And some decisions that he's made that I don't want to, I don't get too far into it, but spent a lot of time processing his mom. And in the course of that conversation, came up, I think I suggested that he read the Boundaries book, Hmm. which he did, and then he turned around and read Our Mothers Ourselves by McLeod and Townsend, and then decided that he's going to have his whole church of Chinese people read Our Mothers Ourselves by McLeod and Townsend, Hmm. because it's just that important that they Hmm. understand sort of the matriarchal culture of China and the ways it impacts their families, their homes, their relationships with each other, their understanding of church and church life all that sort of stuff. And so I started reading it or listening to it rather on Audible, but I'm not very far in. I just thought that was really interesting that he thought it was that important. And this is, he's, I think he's reformed. I'm just not, I'm not even, I'm not very far in at all. Have you learned anything interesting? I couldn't tell you. No, I just got through the introduction, I think is about all I did. So anyhow, that was an interesting thing that happened to me that I don't know what I think I could say this. I could I think it's I can say I think I can pass on a recommendation that if you have mommy issues or if you're from an an Asian background, I have a Chinese pastor friend who thinks you should strongly consider reading or listening to our mothers ourselves. This dude's reformed, he's rock solid. I know that when we recommend or talk about things like this, people are sort of like, well, I don't know, that's pretty psychological, pretty self helpy type stuff. But that's just, he was so helped by it and found it so helpful in terms of thinking about the people in his church and helping them that he's just decided the whole church is going to read it and study it together and talk through it. That's cool. Just throw that out there as something from one friend to you if you have 
and maybe you're a pastor and you've got people in your church with mommy issues or come from a more matriarchal sort of background. It might be helpful to you too. I don't know. I, I really have only just, I think if I'm looking at my audible thing correctly, I think I'm like three minutes in. So pretty hard to... You know the title. You know the authors. <laughs> That's right. You know the person that read it, maybe. No. Okay. I did get through the introduction in three minutes into the first chapter. So I'm like 10 minutes in. But anyhow, I'll check in on it and let you know more cool. as I get a little farther yeah. along. Yeah. I'm interested to read that. Me too. I, I was just thinking about mommy issues. Um, what did I see? Oh, I saw somebody talking about why a child's first words are usually dada instead of mama and i always assumed that was just because those vowel sounds were easier consonant sounds. those consonant sounds were easier but what this person was saying is one i think i've read that is why yeah i think that that that's what i had already always heard and assumed and I, I don't know that this necessarily conflicts with that but this person was sharing a recent theory that you think of that infants don't actually think of their mother at mothers as separate beings. One thing that's really interesting if people mm. haven't had kids, it's interesting to watch kids individuate. My toddler, I have a two-year-old, right? And what she's always saying is me. And I don't mean like she's grabbing something and being selfish. I just mean she'll say, hi, daddy. And then she'll say me as, a, <laughs> as in I am an entity. I have walked into the room. I am different than you I have acknowledged that you exist. Now let's yeah. acknowledge that I exist. She's always, I don't know how, how better to explain it. She's always saying things like that. She's, al she's always establishing herself as a person, as an individuated entity. And it's fascinating to watch her little brain work that out and figure out what the boundaries are between her and other people, what the rules are. Yeah, and they're going to talk about that sort of thing in the boundaries book. Right. Exactly. It's very attachment theory you know, type stuff that mom is the last person that you individuate from where you, you're inseparable. And, but it has to happen in a healthy way and continue to happen. Anyway, what this theory said was that mothers, infants do not, at least under this theory, consider their mother to be a separate entity from themselves for the first year or two. It, it, mother is just a connected source of nurturing and warmth and nutrients and all this stuff. And so the first person that they actually notice is around and not them is dad, which I don't have any particularly profound thoughts about that, but I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, and it's really interesting. whether it's actually true or not, it still seems to capture something. Something, yeah. Yep. And I don't know, it got me thinking about, okay, so what does, so what is a mother and what is mommy hunger? And we have people in our church. I have friends that I have a pretty good relationship with. I mean, everybody has mother issues, just like everybody has daddy issues one way or another, because your mom's and your mom and your dad, whoever they were, were sinners. But, you know, I, I know people that have much stronger mommy issues than I do. And just trying to contemplate exactly what that is. Like, it's very, everybody has the category of father hunger, at least everybody in our circles does. And you know yeah. what that looks like, you know how that affects you, you know, kind of the feelings that people have and the problems that they'll have and the things that they'll need to relearn and the things that they'll need to be retaught. I, in my, I at least do not have a similar listicle in my brain for what mommy hunger looks like, how it manifests. I can lump together all the people I know that I think suffer from egregious cases of it. And they do have 
similarities that are fascinating, but I don't think I could just like, I can look at somebody and say, okay, daddy issues. I mean, everybody can do that. You know, you see the girl that's dressed immodestly and you make a cynical, you know, well, you know, daddy mm-hmm. issues, look at daddy issues over there in the miniskirt, but you can't necessarily do the same thing with mommy issues. And so I have absolutely zero profound in- insights, but I'm actually quite interested to read this book because yeah, I'd like yeah. to have those profound insights. I think they would be helpful. Yeah. And that's what was kind of where I've been over the last couple of weeks, maybe the last month or so. So it felt timely that he threw this book in front of me. Cause I was looking, I tell you, I mean, my response was, I think this might be the book I was looking for or didn't know I was looking for, but I just haven't had a chance to really get into it yet. Yeah. If nothing else, it's going to be helpful pushing that ball forward because we have to get good at both sides of this. And it's one of the, the more neglected places. I think if you think about the last 10 years, mm-hmm. The Reformed Christian circles have really worked hard to nail down daddy issues, masculinity, that sort of thing. But the whole red pill movement and everything adjacent to it has really neglected the mommy side of things, I think. And I think there's a kind of man who is, I think what's the kind of person that's most challenging for me to, the kind of person I really want to understand is the person who, the man in particular, who had an okay or at least passable father and a bad mother, what does that do to a person? Because you'll meet people that have social skills. They don't have like all the daddy issues, triggers, like they're getting along in life. They can get a job, they can do an interview, they can all the sort of like red pill, these are the things that we need to recapture. Yeah. They've, they've actually got a basic Most foundation and, and you don't look at them and think this person's a mess. But then you get to know them a little bit better and you're like, okay, maybe there is something missing. And what is that? One thing that always gets bandied around in the red pill movement when people are being misogynistic, I think, is they say, well, actually, kids don't need moms. Like as long, statistically, as long as you have a stable relationship <laughs> with your dad, you'll be just fine. <laughs> and yep. no woman would want to marry me anyway. Um, <laughs> and if she did, she'd steal all my money because society is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, just... Instead of being a psychopath, you become a sociopath. Right. You know? Well, yeah, that's kind of my theory, actually. <laughs> I need to read this book to figure out whether that's true. You could be a fairly well-modulated person, but be missing some kind of an emotional core. So, I don't know. It's interesting. I'm very familiar with daddy issues. I've got daddy issues, and I suppose I've got my mommy issues. But I love my mommy. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, but I don't have anything else helpful to say about it. Maybe our listeners have recommendations. Yeah, I think we should all read this book and come back. Mm-hmm. Maybe our listeners are all like, my mom abused me and I stuffed her and I murdered people in the showers. And I've got a lot of insight into this. <laughs> you think all of our listeners are Norman Bates? <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> I really think I've got them nailed. Well, what else? <laughs> what else is going on? Well, I can't follow that act, but I'm more than halfway through Scott Adams' How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still, still Win, win big. big. Yeah, that's because it's a good book. It's really good. I've been impressed by how generous and practical it is. It's a pretty good give it to your high school graduate right? type of a book. It just struck me as, man, there's all kinds of advice in here that whatever you think of Scott Adams, however insufferable you find him, and he is slimy in his way, and... Blah, blah, blah. This is not like listening to his podcast. This is like all this practical stuff that you wish you'd heard. I mean, I wish. I was like, oh, 
why didn't someone teach me all these things? He's right. He just boils down all this practical stuff for you. And he supplemented with funny stories from his life. And they are funny because he is good at humor, turns out. And then he'll just give you these kind of listicle things, the kind of things that we as a podcast have done a few times. Here, six ways to get away for something like that. He'll be like, here's five things that I think you need to know. Here's why I think you need to know them. Okay, moving on. You're like, oh, that was helpful. Why didn't someone do that for me in these 10 areas? People understood these things. Maybe I did learn some of these through osmosis, just family, but maybe I couldn't have put them into words. But here you are and you're just, yeah, it's like if you brought him to a high school to speak, probably the high schoolers would get quite a bit of good stuff out of it. You could build a whole sort of life skills class on a book like that. It's and it's good. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it's filler. I think I think generous is the word. He is a he he thinks of himself very highly. He does. But but he also thinks because I am so great, I need to share with everyone. That, and that actually is true. And that suffuses even the most obnoxious parts of his podcast and um, yep. he can't be insufferable, but what I actually really appreciate about him is that he's it doesn't threaten him to talk about his humor process, talk about how he writes a Dilbert or did back when before he got canceled. I guess he still writes it on his locals thing. I think he actually believes that other people could replicate his results. Like yeah. he actually, and he doesn't feel threatened by that. He's like, yeah, you should do this too. You could be rich too. Yeah. Who knows what you could do? Yeah, which is great. He's just not stingy with no, anything. That's, that, that's a really cool quality. Yeah. Well, I've been reading a book called The Method, about method acting and the rise of the method. And it's really, really interesting. It's about huh. Stanislavski, the theater Empresario in Russia who came up with the concept of what was not called the method. It was called something else. I forget. I don't know. I'm, I'll probably talk more about this book some other time. Maybe I'll talk about it on Sanity at the Movies. So it traces from early 20th century Russia before the, the revolution and then through the revolution and then the method coming to America. And, and then it is going to, I haven't gotten to this part yet, but I assume it'll trace it through Marlon Brando and all those guys to your Daniel Day. Lewis's, and so it just talks about the theater, Russian theater of the time, and how staid and unlived and ridiculous and ritualistic it was. And this guy doing all these experiments to like, how can we get people to actually be replicating real human feeling up on the stage? How do you get there? What do you do? This guy just decided he wanted to figure it out. And I think sometimes on our movie podcasts in particular, I can be a little snotty about the method, you know, like we all hate Jared Leto and these people who like, I have to become the character. And then they just have an excuse to act awful and mistreat people and be self-indulgent. But that's actually not Stanislavski. Stanislavski's just like, okay, you got to be sad, which means you need tears. So what do you do? Should you remember something sad that happened to you? Or do you get yourself into the character such that you can experience, actually experience it? Like what, what, how do you actually get there? Let's just figure this out. And it's interesting. I don't have my thoughts all organized on it yet. So I'll probably come back and talk about it more. It's very influenced by Tolstoy actually. And by Tolstoy's weird quasi spiritual understanding of what art should be and what art should do. I think I wrote down a quote here. Yeah. Tolstoy in this famous essay on art said, art is the manifestation of feelings conveyed externally, the means of communication whose highest goal is to unify humanity by expressing the loftiest feelings that people have attained. And so that actually 
sparked an entire Russian revolution, which eventually came to the United States. And it's a really interesting story. So how much does take, say, someone like Robert De Niro, how well does he represent what Stanislavski started? And how much did it change? I think he represents the, what would you say, the self-indulgent perfecting of Stanislavski's method. So Stanislavski is just like, what Stanislavski did is he got a troop of actors together and he believed as a troop we have to learn these things so that we can communally create a piece of art that will represent a grander vision, which is a very Russian, very Tolstoy kind of thing, like what I was just reading. Uh-huh. And that's where all this stuff comes from. Some Somewhere in mid-century America, it becomes the great singular artist, a, you know, Dustin Hoffman or Robert De Niro or somebody going into himself and finding a character, Daniel Day-Lewis or something like that. And I think Stanislavski would admire what these men achieve in terms of becoming characters, but what he might not admire is the self-indulgence and the sort of, I have to do this actually, whether it serves the project well or not. Like Mm -hmm. my job is to become this character. And I don't think that he would necessarily have a ton of patience for that kind of thing. I I don't know. I'll have more to say about it later. I think I've been re-engaging with my artistic side for reasons that I won't go into on this podcast, but maybe I will someday on another podcast. Yeah, I guess that reminds me that I've been, in terms of my reading, it's actually been more focused on a really wide array of fiction. I read No Country for Old Men, and I started The Crossing, the two Cormac McCarthy's, but I've also been reading Raymond Chandler, Farewell, My Lovely, which is has really been... A lot of fun. Super enjoyable. He's the best. He's just really fun. It's really fun. Going to have a lot of, in Farewell, My Lovely, a lot of racial stuff, we'll say. But outside of that, man, he's just a fun writer. If you're willing and want to just live in his world and with his with uh, with Marlowe and don't really care where it's going or how it's going to get there, which was my problem with The Big Sleep or what I remember to be my problem with the big sleep, which is probably not fair, but man, it's just refreshing to be with a writer who can write dialogue and descriptions. And sometimes it's hammy. It's over the top. It's a little much the way that Ray Bradbury can be or something. Not mm-hmm. quite like that, but not quite as hammy as or purple as Bradbury, but you know, he reaches for his metaphors sometimes. And no, he does, but I always enjoy them. And yeah, a lot of it's, it's just part of a whole vibe. It's just, and I just, you know, for me, Philip Marlowe is just Humphrey Bogart. It's sort of like living in a Humphrey Bogart movie that you've never seen, which is fun for me. And maybe that, maybe there's more to Marlowe than that, but I like think of it, thinking of it that way. It's fun for me. I'm just looking through quotes from the novel. Just random. It's got two of the, two of the most famous. She was a blonde to make a bishop kick in a, kick a hole in a stained <laughs> glass window. Yeah. <laughs> And he was about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a piece of angel food cake, or is that the one? The other angel one? food, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But just things like this one. I was a swell guy. I enjoyed being me. Like that's a great quote. <laughs> There's so many fun little. Those are the best ones. Yeah, <laughs> the subtle lines where he's just sort of like uh. self consciously talking <laughs> to himself in that first person. That's super fun. Oh, I sent you one of my favorites. That really got. 
a good laugh out of me. What was that? I probably can't possibly go back and find it. I think you are a very stupid person. You look stupid, you're in a stupid business, and you came here on a stupid mission. I get it, I said. I'm stupid. <laughs> it sank in after a while. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Oh, here it is. So he's got this great big paragraph describing this dude, and this is how it starts. Uh, the door opened silently, and I was looking at a tall blonde man in a white flannel suit with a violet satin scarf around his neck. There was a cornflower in the lapel of his white coat. And then you get like literally 10 lines of further description. And then it ends with this. Apart from all that, or apart from all this, he had the general appearance of a lad who would wear a white flannel suit with a violet scarf around his neck and a cornflower in his lapel. <laughs> I just... I really like his way gotta, of capturing people. I just found another one that I... This, this one isn't funny. And you just ima- I just imagine Humphrey Bogart delivering that Oh, line. yeah, no, he'd be great. Like, yeah. Suddenly, without any real change in her, she ceased to be beautiful. She looked merely like a woman who would have been dangerous 100 years ago and 20 years ago daring, but who today was just grade B Hollywood. Just stuff like that I really like. Well, maybe one day we'll talk about why we're re-engaging with our creative side. Does it mean we're doing more Ville? I don't know. Yes. Hope so. Hope so. Don't make any promises you can't keep. Patreon.com forward slash sign of sanity. Stay sane.